0: everybody. This is Phil Town.
1: And this is Danielle Town.
0: And we're here for the Invested Podcast. And I'm so glad to be back.
1: Yay! You're back. Yay. <laughs> Dad,
0: I missed you. Oh, I missed doing this with you too. I've, I've just been off for a little while and um, I'm excited to get cranking on this again because... We just had a a really good um workshop for three days in Birmingham, Alabama first time we ever went to Birmingham
1: Alabama oh is that your role on workshops that you do the weekend like three day weekend workshops
0: yep and as soon as I say Alabama I kind of want to do that thing from Forrest Gump you know oh dear. I can't remember what he was saying about Alabama he's some someplace in Alabama when he when he gets know. in that fight know. with that with that uh, <laughs> that hippie and he says I'll be in Greenbow, Alabama or something like that. Anyway, it was really cute. Tom Hanks is such a good <laughs> actor.
1: I, I know. Love it. That movie was on TV the other day and I hadn't seen it in years and I just watched like 10 minutes of it and all I thought was, God, this really holds up. It's really a good it movie. It
0: really holds up well. It does. I feel like I've so, got a little Forrest Gump in me to tell you the truth.
1: <laughs> I think you do actually. You've really? had not just nine lives, you've had about 30 different lives <laughs>
0: But I, really, I totally relate to that whole scene where he's he's back he's in the military and he's back from Vietnam and he's part of that peace demonstration and he's part of this Black Panther party and you know the whole the whole I like sequence there
1: remember. Oh I don't I haven't gosh. seen it in so long
0: that that brought it all back to me in a big way um because I was for a, for a period of time I was um was involved in both sides of this thing and it was just oh man crazy time back in the 60s and early 70s that's for sure
1: <laughs> i think when you get like ultra old and you're confined to a chair and you just have people like bring you what you want i think that your brain will still work totally well and you should write your memoirs
0: <laughs> i think they have made very really boring unless I could figure out a way to write them really in an interesting way because memoirs are generally pretty boring reads. They unless, are not. You don't think You and they I are?
1: both read memoirs like crazy. What are we Mem- talking
0: about? I guess, I guess I love, I love autobiographies. Is that a memoir?
1: Yes.
0: Oh, okay, good. Well, then there we go. <laughs> it's
1: just a fancier word. <laughs> I like
0: autobiography better. Memoir sounds like some old fart sitting on a couch talking in the <laughs> most boring terms about something that he experienced.
1: Whereas autobiography somehow sounds amazingly fascinating yeah, to it's you. it's
0: like, really like those.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it entirely depends on the subject matter and I think you've got it. Um, well, speaking of
0: autobiographical work here, on this podcast, we are breaking down the investing process of the best investors in the world who are all in the same camp that the world considers to be value investing, but which I call rule one investing. Ah. Yeah, I think there's a difference there. Value investing uh, is, is the idea of trying to buy something cheaper than what it's worth. This is mm-hmm. the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and rule one investing is focusing not so much on cheaper than it's worth, as don't lose money, which is rule mm-hmm. number one, right? Now those two which things you've been go hand teaching in hand. Me
1: now for many many hours, many many episodes, yep, and a couple of years.
0: And it's a it's a lovely thing actually. This this uh, I love what you've introduced to me. Uh, it, this thing you've introduced to me is this idea of a practice that I've never thought about my investing before, in terms of a practice. Um, You know, I tend to be kind of goal oriented, right? And like, okay, now we got it. But a practice says that you're never going to got it, right? You're never going to be there. It's always a work in progress. And certainly you'll go through the phases of not knowing anything and then becoming somewhat, uh, you know, decent at what you're doing and ultimately become a rather um, a master at what you're doing.
1: And but that the joy is in the journey of the, going through
0: those The joys in the journey. And I love that idea because investing is so often thought about as a, something you have to go through to get to something, you know, a yeah. certain amount of money, a certain lifestyle. Um, and
1: that's exactly why people like me don't do it because of that, because it's this goal out there and we're busy and we're doing other stuff and we don't really want to deal with it. And so going through a process that's only to get to a goal doesn't sound like a great use of time.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, if you're struggling to get to this thing, right, as you're digging this ditch to get to this goal of having a ditch dug or something, right? But I think, you know, we look at the people who we're emulating and who we're talking about in this podcast, particularly Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Um, but in general, the value investors that we know, I think you'd have to argue, are pretty happy people. I mean, pretty yeah. interesting people who are really engaged in the world on a, on a different level than a lot of people are. And, and I think that that comes in part from, well, I think Charlie talks about it a really different kind of way. He basically says that, you know, every great investor he's ever met just reads a lot about mm-hmm. everything, reads everything. And it all sort of stews around in your brain um, and feeds into your view that oh, hey, well, this is something that's really valuable and it's underpriced. It's been mispriced in the market for some reason, and you try to understand the reason it's been mispriced. And if you if you like the reason, if it's a good reason to uh, to invest in something that's been mispriced for a short period of time, then you you jump in at it. But it's the process of really understanding the world. That's so fascinating that Charlie is so into, right? It
1: is. It is. And what we want to talk about starting today is this incredible interview that came out, um, about a month ago, but with Monish Pabrai, who's a rule number one style investor. And he gave an interview to Forbes online, um, now, before we do that, first of all, I'm telling you guys the interview because you should all go find it and read it. I tweeted it, I put it on Facebook. It's, this interview is, I put it in my monthly newsletter. Like, this interview is worth reading and we're going to talk about it. Yeah. But I'm going to, I'll now, put it
0: out to all, I put it out to all of our students and, uh, and have them all take a look at it too. So it's really if valuable. Google,
1: if you look up like Forbes, Munish Puri, it'll come up. Um, It came out on June 25th, 2018. But before we start our discussion, Dad, I just have a little bit of housekeeping. First of all, guys, as you know, last week, we started our first ever inaugural Invested Book Club with Investing Between the Lines by L.J. Rittenhouse. And I'm so excited about this book. So on August 14th, on our episode on August 14th, we're going to play my entire interview with the author all about this book and how she evaluates companies using words, not so much numbers, which to me like blew my mind. So pick up that book, check it out. That will be our August 14th episode. Now that I've said that, Mm -hmm. let me add one more thing. We also promised to talk about owner earnings that we put in our book invested and we are going to get to that you guys, but it needs, it's a big subject and we need a little, Prep and we need to make sure we have a good amount of time to chat about it and really understand how to get into these numbers. So we're going to put that off um, for a little bit later, but it's coming. I promise it's on our mind.
0: Yep. Right. Dad? And yep. That's what we're going to do. Um, owner earnings is fascinating. It's a concept that Warren Buffett created. As far as I know, nobody else really uses that term. Warren and Charlie use it. Um, they've uh, rather subjective way of coming out to the numbers that that makes it not really, you know, crystal clean about how you're going to end up with a number. Um, And we'll get all into that um, and why we like to use it.
1: Yeah. Uh, So there's a lot to talk about and I want to make sure we have the time and the focus to really make a a strong series. Because as you guys know, this is why we wrote our book, Invested, because... We talked about this stuff on the podcast, and it's hard to really make it clear in a purely audio format. So now that we have the book, we can refer to it easily, and you guys can all refer to it easily, and then we can really talk about it much much more clearly. And so by the I'm way, saying,
0: of course, yeah. we we dive deep into the concepts of owner earnings, free cash flow, payback time, all of these, these concepts of valuing businesses deeply in our three-day workshop, and I'm going to make a unembarrassed plug here,
1: mm-hmm. that...
0: <laughs> that the invested book is an incredible workbook for the three-day workshop and the podcast here, this invested podcast is sending more and more people to the workshop all the time. Um, So if you decide to come, you're going to be there with a a relatively large number of people who have been big fans of this podcast and have listened to every single one of them. Some of them a couple (laughs) of times Um, and come and they come so prepared, Danielle, there were a big bunch of them in Birmingham and, cool. They, they're so prepared. I mean, they're so, they've really studied and it's phenomenal to see what they can do in three days because wow. they're kind So Well, as fun. long
1: as we're plugging the workshop, dad, I am going to be at the our October workshop. I don't go to them all that often. Um, this is exciting. So just so you all know, podcast listeners, I will be at the October one and I would love to meet you and, uh, have pictures and sign books and chat. And, and we, we might that. even do a
0: podcast broadcast right out of their live. You
1: know, I think we should. I've been thinking about that and I just have not, the audio logistics of it are a little difficult. So we need, we need to do that. That would be a great idea. I we'll love get, it. It'd we'll get so my
0: fun. team on it and see if they can come up with something that'll work.
1: All right, cool. You know, so, so that's cool. all of our housekeeping. Let's move on to this amazing interview. And I'm so glad that you, led into it by talking about practicing because to me, this interview is about how Monish Pabrai practices investing. Mm -hmm. He talks a little bit about specific investments, a tiny bit, but really he just talks about how he approaches value investing. It's, and it's just, I just love the way he talks about it. He sort of like touches on it very lightly. Like he's just like keeping it simple. Let me,
0: let me introduce Monash just briefly. I I, we've talked about him on the podcast before, but, and you'll see a good bio, you'll see a good bio, um, in the Forbes article. And I just, just real briefly tell you that he's from India, um, came to Clemson in the, in the 1980s. Um, he's got a degree as an engineer, did it work, formed his own small company and then eventually sold it. And, um, After selling his company, he read Roger Lowenstein's book, Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist. And he was so taken with it that he started diving into the next level, which was to read every single one of Warren Buffett's letters to his shareholders. And he got hooked from there. And um, he is a extremely um, good teacher about investing. I really like his book. His book is called The Dondo Investor, um, which is award-winning and um, speaks about investing in terms of buying businesses, Um, public companies. Yeah, he lays out his
1: strategy of investing in The Dondo Investor.
0: Yep. And Mosaic, Perspectives on Investing, which is a series of uh, kind of essay-like things that he goes into on investing, which are really good. And you should read those books. I mean, those are uh, things to add to the library. Um, along with Lowenstein's book. And, um, and we'll, we've gotten to know Monash a little bit just from attending Charlie Munger's annual meeting. And um, it was really cute at Munger's meeting this last year. He had Monash actually stand up to um, be applauded by the audience for insisting on a really ethical structure to his fund, um, which is copying Warren's structure which is to not charge fees and to put a minimum rate of return per year before he starts to take his participation in profits. What Charlie asked him to do is stand up and, and receive some applause for um, really putting the investors first by not charging a, a fee, not skimming off the top, which I think is really pretty cool. And I think um,
1: it's incredible. Incredible. And I actually wasn't really going to touch on that in this discussion because it doesn't really matter to those of us learning about investing so that we can do it ourselves. But I find it absolutely fascinating, this distinction between investors who manage other people's money, who choose to at least attempt or achieve this zero management fee, no, manage, yeah, management fee. Right. I was fee or um, what's the other kind of fee called where you take Participation a- Participation fee. Participation, thank you. Um, So what that means is they don't charge any money off the top, as dad said, but what they do then is take a larger percentage of any money they make for you. So everyone's incentives are aligned, which is beautiful.
0: It is. And what's really extraordinary, I, I think, is that the only people who get the benefit of this kind of Monash Pabrai fee structure or Warren Buffett free structure where you're not charging fees, you only charge if you make people money, the only people that can benefit from that are wealthy people. The Securities Exchange Commission, in in their wisdom from 1937 or something, determined that um, if you were to run a fund where individuals can invest who are not wealthy, that would be a sort of a mutual fund structure, a public mutual fund, you're not allowed to take participation in the profits. Right. People don't realize that. They, they're mutual fund managers who are the only funds that are available to be actively managed for people who are not wealthy, are not allowed to participate in the profits. They must charge a fee. And the reason the SEC did that is, at least their logic is, that if you allow a fund manager to participate in the profits, you incentivize him to take risk.
1: Right, that's the point. They are trying to protect against risk taking and create a situation in which the manager is kind of a benevolent ruler who is making the decisions simply to make money but not actually focus on themselves. And it doesn't work. Like, it makes no sense. Even as I'm saying it, it makes no sense.
0: <laughs> it it does make sense if you invest with somebody who's not moral, um, who is unethical, who has low integrity, then absolutely they could just take a shot because they don't get paid. There's no fee.
1: No, but what it does, is, and you've said this a million times on here, what it does that drives me nuts is that what it creates is the incentive to simply bring in more money because yeah. you get paid based on a fee across the amount of money that you manage. So if you manage more rather than less, you get paid more rather than less. Not how you do. Not how you do. Nothing to do with how you do. Yeah. So like assuming that people take their money out, if you do badly, okay, that's a check on you, but that's going to take a while for that to happen.
0: Oh, well it's incentivized fund managers to be very cautious and to just kind of stay with the market. And Probably 95% of the people who are managing money are, in in essence, shadowing the stock market rate of return, um, knowing that if they can do slightly better, not a lot better, like Buffett or or Monash, but a little bit, but it's a little bit, half a point better. So
1: Monash... Yeah, I was just going to
0: say, then then the money stays with them. And they get paid based on assets under management. They get a percentage, a, a management fee, typically in the range of 1% to 3% um, for the, man- the assets under management. So all they do, as you say, is just accumulate assets under management and try to hold on to it rather than yeah. trying to do a really good ethical job of managing money. And that's a really uh, a terrible irony is that the people who need the best managers in the world are not getting them.
1: Well, I'll tell you another one which I I read this interview with Monish Pabrai and had never thought about this really, about hedge fund managers actually taking zero management fees as a concept. And I was fascinated. And I started reading everything I could find about how people do that because I thought, why doesn't everybody do that? This is so obvious even as just a marketing tool. And I'll tell you why. It's really hard to run a fund without having any management fees because funds are expensive to run. You've got to pay yourself. You got to pay people to work for you. You got to pay a lot of startup costs. You have to pay lawyers. You have to pay, um, what are the people called who do all the accounting, who do like Administrative
0: people, uh, the administration. Okay, there you
1: go, the administration. They have they have like some fancier role than what it sounds like, but yes, the administration. Yep. Um, There's all these things, there's all these costs, just like running any business would have costs. And so, what this means is that Monish Pabrai pays for all of those costs essentially out of his own pocket, thanks to his structure. Now, he can afford to do that because he's been going for quite a while, a number of years. He's done well for quite a number of years. So, for him, it's fine. But for somebody starting up a fund, it's really, hard to do this unless you come from family money i actually read a whole white paper about how you can set up a zero uh, management fee fund and it essentially concluded if you have money then you can do it as long as you can like manage to live for two to three years without getting paid and you can front all of your startup costs and admin costs then you can do it and by then you should assuming you're good at what you do you should make enough money to where then the fund will pay for itself, Yep, but it, but it, it's hard. So So it was really good education for me to understand why people in real life, in real business may want to do it like this, but aren't able to.
0: Yeah. And I think that the vast majority of people who are investing money for other people are pretty much modern portfolio theory investors. They don't really think you can beat the market for any long period of time. Um, and they prove that out by their funds, not beating the market for any long period of time. And so it's really in their best interest to charge a fee. Uh, and otherwise they probably just wouldn't even do it. Um, whereas you've got guys like Monash and, and Warren and, and Charlie and Guy Spear and really, really good investors who are coming into it with some money to start with. Um, although I got to say Buffett didn't come into it with money to start with. He started with a hundred dollars and made his first, uh, Group of people, I think a hundred thousand dollars was his first partnership, and he did that basically with no fee, and pretty quickly started to make money right away, and that kind he of charged, informed. He
1: charged some sort of <laughs> management i kind of want to pull i'm reading that book out mm-hmm.
0: now he, i don't think so maybe maybe i'm wrong there was here, a but...
1: there was a small one I, now i gotta look it up i'll look it up and i'll, I'll report
0: okay good report, because what was
1: interesting that. this book is fascinating lowenstein's biography of buffett um and i highly recommend that should be in our invested book club next if i can get him to come on our podcast because that's the rule dad nobody's book except they come on the podcast all right good um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to quickly regret that rule. Um, but I, what I thought was so fascinating was his shift. And now we're moving on to Buffett. Buffett's shift from his partnership structure to his corporate structure with Berkshire Hathaway was, in my opinion, in I think there are two reasons. One was he didn't think he could make any money in the market for a number of years. So he just literally got out. And when you're in a fund like that and you're running it and you're managing people's money, that's doesn't work too well and secondly I think he just didn't want to deal he didn't want to have any sort of fees it was just either you're in or you're out you buy a share of stock or you don't like those are the options very simple
0: I think there was one more reason and I I, he's never talked about this this is just um, my uh, guess is that he had five or six partnerships by that time um, and quite a millions and millions of dollars under management he had been doing 30% 30% plus rates of return for many years. And I think at some point he got tired of people um questioning his judgment about staying in a stock or not staying in a stock or leaving your money in cash. And it 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 starts to wear on on investor in on investment managers after a while, the the demand of people for constantly improving rates of return and mm-hmm. i think that you know when when you're delivering 30% and people are still leaving your fund or re- asking for redemptions or thinking you haven't done well if you have a year where you don't do 30% they yeah. it must be frustrating that your own investors simply don't understand the investing me- method that you're using in spite of all these letters you've written in spite of trying to teach them they still don't understand and I've seen that at uh, at the Berkshire meetings where um, where in 2008 Buffett said very clearly he hoped that the stocks that he owns in Berkshire would go down in this recession of 2008 he hoped yeah. they would get, he said he hoped they would go down fifty percent and
1: yeah th- I remember when you told me that on this podcast I could not comprehend why anyone would want that right but now but now i'm like oh yeah of course (laughs) all
0: right you have drunk the kool-aid
1: i know i was just thinking that you
0: you you really you really know you've drunk the rule one kool-aid when you really look forward to your own stocks going down i mean that (laughs) is so counterintuitive to The 99% of investors out there, they just simply can't grasp why anybody would want that to happen. And that, of course, was the case with all of these people in the audience in 2008. There was an audible moan in the crowd from Buffett saying that because it would mean that Berkshire stock would go down. And these people who are watching this master invest have been investors for years, still did not understand the basic concepts of investing.
1: Dad, why would Buffett want those stocks to go down
0: so that he can take the cash he has and buy lots more of them with companies he already knows a lot about doesn't have to do the research and buys them on sale and this ultimately would be the idea of consuming things right we talked about this like a couple years ago i think maybe is that if if you were consuming hamburgers you loved hamburgers Do you want the price of hamburgers to go up or down if you know you're going to be consuming hamburgers into the future? And Buffett's point is, you should want the price of hamburgers to go down. And he said, I am a consumer of stocks. I'm a buyer. I'm not a seller. And so if I'm a buyer, I want these companies to go on sale over and over again so that I can buy them cheaper and cheaper. And that, that really does make sense if you're a consumer over the long term. And that would mean you're having... Some form of capital coming in from the outside, right? You're not stuck with a, a single amount of money that you've got to make yes. money on. Yes, yes, you've got money coming in, and in payback time, I talked about it in the form of a Berkey, like basically a cute term for Berkshire Hathaway, being a company <laughs> which flows cash flow, owner earnings flowing into Warren Buffett to reinvest mm-hmm. every year. And, uh, I mean. It gets to be quite a pile of money coming in in the form of cash flow. So here's Buffett right now, for example, with over a hundred billion that's come in from just pure cash flow from all these companies he owns. And so his his point is well taken. If you have, let's say you're in a you're making money in a job, and you're saving ten percent of your money every year, then that would mean every year you've got more capital to invest, and you want to mm-hmm. buy stuff cheap. So yeah, you mm-hmm. want stuff to go down. It's very yeah. non-intuitive.
1: It's super non-intuitive. And I think the point that you need to have additional funds to invest is the is the key point there. Because I think the people who are going, oh no, are, are probably just thinking like we have a set amount of money. It's all invested in Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> we can't put any more in. And they don't remember that Buffett in the company has quite a lot of
0: cash that right. he wants to deploy. Right, and, and this is a, this makes a big difference, right? If you're retired, you don't have any money coming in, then I would say probably you pretty much don't want stock prices to go down. Um, <clears throat> after you've invested all of your capital, you want to buy in in a kind of 2009 recession, stock market crash and everything's down 50%. You want to load up the truck with all of your retirement capital right there. You want to be very aggressive. And then you want to just sit there and reap the rewards right through mm-hmm. uh, through great rates of return from dividends and from these companies going up in, in capital appreciation. So it's a really the basic interesting idea. point
1: that you're making without, oh. I'll just call it out cause you're not totally saying it. Like there may be different investing strategies in different periods of your life in different financial situations. Um, I mean, I know I've heard you say a number of times, like, like how I shouldn't be afraid of investing because nobody's shooting at me. So how scary can it be? (laughs) Or as I'm completely easy easy
0: for me to say, right?
1: Yeah, I'm completely (laughs) generally freaked out. But but your point is that when you're young, it's not the end of the world if you lose all your money, you know, like, let's say I lose all my money. Okay, I'm going to pick myself up and have a lot of years left to make that money back and do a better job. Whereas if I were 75, that would not be true. Right.
0: But I think the the investment concepts should be exactly the same, to tell you the truth. I don't think that you should change your view and try to do more aggressive investments when you're young and more conservative investments when you're old. I think that that is the uh, sort of the general strategy of modern portfolio theory, uh, Mm -hmm. financial advisors. But I think in the real world of value investing, you want the same strategy all the time. You want to be looking for wonderful businesses that are on sale. The difference is going to be whether you just sit there with them for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a much better way to say it.
0: So you would sell them as you're, as you're young, you would, you would, as this company will come up into uh, a certain level, a range of intrinsic value, like you buy it on sale, fifty percent off, and it doubles, and now it's back at intrinsic value. Then you'll make a judgment whether the future growth rate of this company will continue to be so significant that you want to hang on to it or not. And if it's mm-hmm. not going to be that significant, then you maybe want to. And if you have other places to put the money, yeah, then you yeah, want yeah, to move. Yeah. Then you want to move out of that and move to something well, new.
1: What I find interesting in this Monish Pabrai interview is that he says he actually doesn't own any U.S. companies at all right now. Which
0: Should we and, should we dive into this eventually here, or should we start a new podcast
1: <laughs> for next week? You guys, but I just thought it was such a like apropos thing to move to because we're talking about Pabrai and Buffett and the way they're, they're different and, and Buffett, has said many times that he thinks the U.S. is a great long-term bet. So, yeah, I'm really interested in this. Yep,
0: platform. and Monash is very clearly in this article saying he's not invested in anything in the U.S. and um, is pretty much like, let's let's uh, let's talk about why. And let's dig into that next time. What do you say? Okay, All sounds
1: right. good. So check out this, um, this interview. We'll talk about it more next time. Monash Pabrai on Forbes.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, Download
0: (laughs) Loewenstein's Buffett. Loewenstein's Buffett, the American (laughs) capitalist.
1: Read Investing Between the Lines. And we'll be back next time with more about all this stuff.
0: (laughs) All right. Until then, I guess, time to go play. See you guys.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop, absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.